A few weeks back, a good friend of mine named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, but veteran newspaper guy Michael Lewis, complained that I made it sound like a good writer has to hate everything they write. That's not what I've experienced, he told me. You can write something and feel good about it. And I just want to say, Michael Lewis is right. You should feel good about what you write. You should be proud. And you should experience a sense of accomplishment. Writer's high and all that stuff. You 100% should. I just rarely do. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Richard Marks, the Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter who sold more than 30 million albums worldwide and whose new memoir, Stories to Tell, is one of the most enjoyable books I've read this year. This is episode number 228. Let's sling some yang. All right, Richard, I love the book. Like, I love stories to tell. And, well, you're off uh, to a good start, Jeff. Thank you. I'm trying my best. <laughs> I'm loving right, this podcast. Hey, yeah, all right. Best podcast ever. And I was kind of wondering, um, is songwriting and memoir writing, is it one and the same? Is it such a different monster that you had no idea what you were doing? Do you just sit down with a pen and a paper or a laptop or whatever in the same way you would if you're working on a song? Or is it a totally different monster? Totally different monster. And I, I think that any writing other than songwriting is very different than songwriting. Um, whether you're writing fiction or whether you're writing pro, you're just writing prose, you're, you're not adhering to any of the songwriting rules, which, you know, is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, uh, I just sort of have uh, imposed, self-imposed these rules of craft on myself because I started writing songs when I was a teenager and I really looked up to everybody from Freddie Mercury and Don Henley to Rodgers and Hammerstein and Cole Porter. And so they all, those, the, all those people did sort of adhere to a certain set of rules in songwriting uh, that they played around w- within. And when it comes to writing like this memoir, there was just, it was completely free form. I didn't have to rhyme anything. I didn't have to, uh, I could really go deeper into exposition. Whereas with songwriting, you know, I think that's really important to be economical. And with writing this book, I felt the freedom to just, I could write and write and write and write. And then I could maybe edit it down a little bit or say, I don't really need that whole bit there. And, <clears throat> but it, it was a totally different muscle, totally different sensibility. And in a certain way, a much more enjoyable process. I, I'm not someone who, and I, I, I think I always attribute this quote incorrectly to Mark Twain, but what I heard was that Mark Twain said, I hate writing, but I love having written. Starthy Parker. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Um, and I totally, that totally resonates with me. I don't enjoy songwriting. It's, but I love when it's, when a song is finished and I'm still mystified by the fact that it happened. That's a real lot of work for me. When I'm writing a song, even when I'm writing, when I'm co-writing with someone and it's effortless and we knock out a really fun song in 20 minutes, which is, has certainly happened, it's still work in that 20 minutes. It's still, whereas writing this book didn't feel like work, it just felt like I was just telling stories as if we were sitting having a martini and I was just like, dude, th- let me tell you this funny story that happened. Wait, I'm actually, I'm fascinated by this because to me, like I'm writing a biography now of Bo Jackson, right? And I have in my world, 
10,000 pages of notes. I've done 700 interviews. I'm drowning. Like I'm actually drowning in Bo Jackson. And I see a guy come along and say, oh, a song, it tortures me. And I look at a song, you know, and I, this is from the far away, uneducated viewpoint, you know, they're quick and they rhyme and I know they're complicated, but I'm just saying like, what is the torture of songwriting as opposed to the torture someone goes through, you know, through the deep research of book writing? Oh, that's a fair question. And, and I'm, the answer I'm going to give you is going to sound really arrogant, um, but I don't mean it that way. And maybe it won't come off that way. But writing songs is easy. Writing good songs is really fucking hard. And so when you have a certain standard or when you've had a certain level of success where you know that there are going to be X number of people listening uh, anticipating this next collection of songs or this next song, even if it's just a single, whatever, that there's going to be a level of scrutiny. There's going to be a level of expectation uh, in terms of the quality of the craft. And that creates a pressure to, you know, I just can't write moon, June bloom. You know what I mean? Right. Um, not to say, not, not saying that, you know, your, your book is, you know, that your research is going to lead to anything like that or anything, you know, too oversimplified. It's just the craft is, oh, here's the other thing. Much like I think the, the way you're writing this particular book on Bo, it, the, here's what's similar about it to what I wrote in my book. I had to really go back and remember and put the pieces of the stories together to the best of my recollection. I had source material. I had uh, as you're doing, I had to kind of research it. I had to go back and look up dates. It's all factual information. It's all uh, readily available information that you then have to, to write in a way that's enjoyable or entertaining, right? Yeah. When I sit down to write a song, I have to pull that shit out of the ether. I don't have source material. I don't have references. I don't have, uh, I don't have Google searches that are, that are going to help me. I have to just make it up. I have to figure out the right way to, what I want to say, and I have to say it rhythmically in a certain way, and I have to rhyme it in a certain way. And sometimes it's not even just rhyming the ends of the lines. It's it's like sometimes I want to rhyme words within the line, and it has to sing a, you know, a, a certain way. So it's actually just writing a three-minute song can be a really laborious process if you're interested in taking it that far, which I always do. Is there a correlate? Is there any correlation between song that's a huge hit of yours and best songs you've written? Oh, that's a great question. I would say yes and no. I think that generally I would say no. I, I, in my personal opinion, if, if you asked me, if you held a gun to my head, which is, you know, these questions about what are your favorite songs you've ever written are really like, I hate those questions because they're all different, obviously. Each song is different. But if you held a gun to my head and made me write down my favorite dozen songs, what I think are the best songs I've ever written, maybe three of them will have been hits. Wow. And the rest of them will will either have been <laughs> will either have been album cuts or maybe one or two songs that I've still never even released. So isn't that at all frustrating? Like, isn't there a part of you? Like, I've had people who say, I wrote a book about Roger Clemens years ago. It's not a yeah. good book. I've had people come up to me and say, man, I freaking love your Roger Clemens book, blah, blah, blah. And in my head, I'm always thinking, really? Like, do you really? Because I don't even think it like, I don't really like that book. Like, But it was good to them. It was good to them. So are you okay with that? If someone's like, 
blah, blah, blah song. I think that's the best song ever. And it's some song you're not even that big into. Is that kosher for you? Yeah, because um, once once I've released a song, it's everybody's. And, and I and I I mean, I might not agree with it. Now, if somebody comes up to me and says satisfied is a better song than hazard. I'm going to go, I mean, I'm happy you like satisfied, but it's it's not. <laughs> it's not even close. It's like junior varsity compared to hazard. And part of that is, you know, I wrote satisfied when I was 25 and at the last, you know, it was like the last 11th hour of making my second album and they wanted, and the label was like, we need one more rock and roll song that's maybe going to be the lead single. We feel like you've got lots of singles on this record, but we want that first lead up. So I, I had all these parameters and I just ran into this little demo studio and I wrote Satisfied in one evening. And I still love playing it live. It was a number one single. Uh, a lot of people tell me that they really still love me. Oh man, I was jamming out to Satisfied the other day. But when I look at that song lyrically, I'm even, it's so vague that even I am like, I really should have spent another couple of days in that lyric. Are hyper-specific lyrics always better than vague lyrics? Is that a basic, stupid, obvious? No, no. no I just, I just think that I'm telling tales on myself because I know that there were, because of the situation I was in, I probably didn't nitpick it the way I would any other song or have other any other song. Right. That was a really isolated, rare instance where I had to just write what I wrote that evening and turn it in. And then and everybody at the label, my manager, and everybody loved it. And we're like, this is this is it. This is your first single. And they were right. It was number one single. And there were a few lines I really like in it. But generally, I don't know exactly what the theme is. It felt I was what I was trying to write was a, was basically a a song for the nine to fivers in the world to say, look, even though you might be in this shit job where you punch in and punch out and you're just like a zombie, that doesn't mean you have to live the, the other hours of your day that way. Right. You can spend the other 16 hours embracing life and don't give up until you're satisfied just sort of became this chant this like that seemed catchy to me and i tried to then fill in the story behind it and i think that i was just marginally successful at doing it but i have a weird question for you you kind okay. of alluded to it like one of your biggest hits is don't mean nothing which is a song i actually genuinely genuinely love and once you, you hear it it just sticks in your head for a million years and you can't get it out Welcome to the big time. You're bound to be a star. Even if you don't go all the way, I know you'll go far. It's races for rats. You can turn you upside down. Uh, no one can count you out in a sleazy little town. Do you as a songwriter, this may be weird to ask, like feel handcuffed by having to rhyme? Sometimes, yeah. You do? Sure. Well, I think we all do. I think every songwriter or lyricist feels that way because here's the other thing. Not only do you have to rhyme it, but there are times when I'll be working on a lyric and I'll have the setup line. I'll have the first two lines and I'm, I'm writing the second two lines and I need to rhyme the, the fourth line with the second line, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll be working on it and working on it and working on it. All of a sudden I'll have this moment of inspiration and I'll write down this really interesting, clever, 
cool as fuck line and realize that I'm rhyming it with the same fucking word and you can't do that. And I'll go, God damn it. Well, then which line do I change? And then you're going back and forth when, and then you're compromising a little bit. So if you just had the freedom, like, like we were talking about writing a book, I can say anything I want in as clever or, uh, complicated or even pretentious way as I want because I don't have to fit into a, any parameters. I just write what I feel like saying right. in a song. Again, it's not even just the rhyming. It's, um, you know, one of my best friends is, is a guy named Fee Wayville from the tubes. And, um, and we've written a lot of songs together and he, I write, when we write songs together, I write all the music and Fee will either write all the lyrics or he and I will collaborate on the lyrics, but mostly it's Fee's lyrics. And Fee is a poet and he'll write, he'll put words in pop and rock songs like, like a smegma or, or halitosis or, you know, like these words that he wants to use. And I'll go, dude, I can't fucking sing those words. You can't, I, you got to replace those words. It's not that the line isn't brilliant. It's that it has to sing well too. It has to be pleasing to the ear. I think smegma is one of the greatest words of all time. It's hard to rhyme it too. <laughs> so do you, okay. If you wrote like, don't mean nothing. You're like, welcome to big star. You're bound to be a star. Even if you don't go all the way, I know you're going to be huge. Right. Right. Could you pull off a song that doesn't rhyme? Like, is it, can you have a song that doesn't rhyme or no? That's just no, not yeah, I mean, one. The first one that comes to my, to mind is one headlight by Jacob Dylan doesn't rhyme. Oh, interesting. I mean, if you go look at the lyric, well, people wine, cigarettes, this place is always such a mess. So he rhymes it within the line, but then the end of the lines, which is what normally, traditionally, is what you're going to rhyme, they don't rhyme. Interesting. But you can. you can do that if you're a badass like Jacob Dylan. But not Richard Martin. No, I can't pull that off. <laughs> I'm not nearly as cool as Jacob Dylan in any way. Wait, one of my favorite parts <laughs> of your book, it had me laughing out loud. I literally just ran downstairs and told my wife about this, is when you... Uh, when InSync performed on um, this, I promise when they recorded this, I promise you they're in the studio and recording and everyone's going crazy for InSync. And you're in your, I guess your forties at this point. And yeah. finally someone comes running up to you and, and she says, my mom loves you. And it's just like, uh, and I was actually wondering, I know you guys always say like, when I write the song and I give it to someone else, it's their song. Like that's kind of a cliche in the business. I give it to you. It's your song. Is that really true? Or do you really lose ownership of a song once another artist records it? Yeah, yes and no. Um, it's their song because they're the ones who are associated with it. And they're the ones who have had the hit with it. But, you know, if I was just a songwriter and I never performed, it would feel even more that way. But when I do concert after concert after concert, in addition to my own hits that I made famous as a singer, when I sing This I Promise You by NSYNC, the audience goes mental because they know the song and they're putting the pieces together now. They're in, you know, and a lot of people who come to see me play know enough about me. They know the songs I've written for other people and they, they love hearing those songs too. But there's always a ton of people in the audience who don't know that I had anything to do with that particular song or Dance With My Father or whatever other song, Vixen's Edge of a Broken Heart, any of these songs. So when I sing them, they're like, holy shit, I love that song. And I didn't know that this guy who I paid money to see anyway wrote that song, so I'm getting a twofer. That's cool. You know? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I've never, and also, you know, just not that you asked, but I mean, I think you, you alluded to it. 
you know, I think I was 30, I was in my late 30s actually when I did this, I promise you, with Sync. And just a mere two or three years before that, I had put out an album that just didn't connect. It didn't do well. I mean, in today's world, it was mega successful. I think it sold like three or 400,000 units. This was in like 97. And that would be considered a massive success today. But back then it was like, oh shit, it's over. And it was after a 10 year run of nothing but hits. And so that was sort of my first um, sense that my chart reign was over. Interesting. And, And so I immediately, rather than throwing a pity party or trying to contort myself into some other version of a musician or artist who would be more accepted at pop radio, I wasn't gonna do any of that. I just went, fuck it. <clears throat> I'm going to go write songs for other people like I, I, like I used to. And within a year, a year and a half, uh, I started having hits. You know, This I Promise You, I think, came out in 99 or 2000. So it was just a couple of years later, I had this massive hit as a songwriter and producer. And so for me, instead of it being like, oh, well, that's a bummer. That's not my hit. I was so grateful to come back onto the charts in such a powerful way. Um, without having to get up at three in the morning to do Good Morning America. Right. You know, like, like I would be, I would watch these guys in sync. They promoted the shit out of that record. And every time they'd be on some morning show, I, I did all those morning shows. I know what it takes. You have to be up at three in the morning and run through, you do like four rehearsals and all that shit. I'm home at 9 a.m. watching them having my coffee. Like they're doing all the heavy lifting. I just had the fun of writing and producing the song and we had a lot of success with it. I was wondering, you and I are somewhat similar politically, I can tell from social media. And um, there are definitely moments when I'm working on a book and I'm like, is this even important? Like, is this even important? You know, like the world is melting, and Trump and blah, 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 a million different things, whatever the social issues of the time. Yeah. Does this even fucking matter that I'm writing a book about so-and-so? I wonder as a songwriter, do you, you're writing some love song, you're writing some song about revenge or regret or whatever. Do you have moments where you're like, what am I doing here? Yeah, totally, totally. I have them all the time. In fact, I'd say in the last five years, and it's it's pro, it's partly a um, comp- the the political climate is partly a component of it or a function of it. But I think I think it's also just my age and ha- having written as many songs as I have, and the state of the music business and where I fit into and all that. I've been way less prolific than I've ever been over the last five years, and and part of that is me going. Do I really want to fucking write songs? Like, what's who, who's, who cares at this point? Haven't I written enough songs? Shouldn't I just chill out? Shouldn't I just do, find some other shit to do? And the only thing that counters it is um, that, A, that's really a big part of who I am is, is a songwriter. And so th- I can't let too much time go by without it calling me. It's, it's something, it, it's a, a function of my personality. I need to write songs every so often. Um, like people need to meditate or do or, or run marathons or whatever. But the other thing is, what counters it for me, Jeff, is uh, I can see that people really want more music out there. People want more, they want to be more entertained. They want they want to feel something. They want to either be taken away from all that shit for a few minutes or 90 minutes in a concert, or they want to feel something emotionally. And those of us who provide that, 
It's not that we have an obligation to it because I don't feel an obligation to do it, to do it. But I feel really honored and grateful to be part of a community who provides that. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett. And you seem really sad about Casey leaving for college this week. Dad? Yeah, I mean, she's your big sister. Bruh, I've been waiting to climb this ladder for far too long. I'm finally first string on the Royal Retro's ad totem pole. At long last, I can be the one telling people to visit royalretros.com for all their throwback needs. It's the e-dog's time to shine, play a pimp. Not sure how to tell you this, play a pimp. We just signed an exclusive five-year, 25 million deal with the family coach to be the new voice of Royal Retros. Yeah, sucker. But I just got my SAG card. There was something in your in your uh, book that actually spoke to me. It was, uh, I will reference page 30. And you wrote, um, so basically you were, you were a young kid in Chicago and you knew someone who knew Lionel Richie and your friend basically got Lionel Richie, a, you know, a couple of your songs on a cassette tape. And you wrote, I couldn't believe I was on the phone with Lionel Richie. And then you were, it's important for me to mention here as a side note that throughout the years when I've recounted this story, I would always say, I couldn't fucking believe Lionel Richie called me. But the truth is, from the moment my friend's friend of a friend of a friend mentioned the remote possibility of it, I knew Lionel Richie would hear the songs and call me. I just believed it would happen. So the truth of the phone call is I was blown away, excited, but not really surprised by it all. When I was young, when I was a junior high school kid, I told my mom I was going to write for Sports Illustrated. I said, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And she said, you have to be realistic, you know, be a lawyer, be a doctor. And I was like, you don't understand. I am going to write for, I know I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated, right? It sounds corny, but what you wrote really resonated with me. Yeah. With you. Did you really just know, did you know he was going to, like, was it a guess? Was it a assumption? Or did you just know Lionel Richie is somehow going to hear these songs and like them? I don't know that you can say you know, but I, I really believed it. I would have been surprised otherwise. Um, what, what I find, you know, it's weird. It's almost like, I'm trying to think of the best analogy for this. Okay, so the, the, I'll just use this as a clumsy analogy. But there are times now when I'll be playing a chord progression on the guitar that's just so natural to me. But I can remember when I was learning to play those particular chords in that way. You know, I would make mistakes. It wasn't as natural and comfortable. I didn't have the confidence in it. Now, I don't even think about it. It's just so natural for me to play those chords in that way with those inversions and all that. Much like when I was really young, I believed that that kind of thing, like Lionel was going to call me and that I was going to become successful as a songwriter and as an artist and get a record deal and all those things. I really believed in those things. But as a 50, you know, tomorrow I'll be 58. As a 58-year-old man, I now have a confidence in my choosing of thoughts that I didn't even understand when I was that age. I didn't understand what was happening. I've only learned in the last eight years that my entire life was a series of choosing my thoughts correctly. And that's why eight years ago when I stumbled upon this book called As a Man Thinketh that was written in 1903 by James Allen, really I think the first that I'm aware of, the first written word that talks about manifestation and and that word is is a little tricky too because the secret kind of in my opinion bastardized that whole concept but the idea that your thoughts the quality of your thoughts dictates the quality of your life 
I absolutely know that to be true. So the, the long-winded answer to your question is that even at 17 or 18, whatever I was, I had a real confidence that those things, that that was going to happen. Lionel was going to call me. He was going to hear my tape, like it, and call me. It, during that same time, Lionel said to me on that phone call, when you, you know, when you make your way out to L.A., you know, look me up. I don't have any work for you. I, don't, I can't help you personally, but I'll certainly recommend you to people. And I, and I even then remember, I didn't put this in the book, but I thought, I don't know, I'm going to work with him. And sure enough, the first day I met him, he ended up just saying, hey, were you trusting in this part? And the next thing I knew, I had a job, you know. I just, none of that was surprising to me because I, I really feel like I helped will it happen. We live in such negative times and we're consumed by such negative news and we're also consumed by so much information, right? It's just coming at us, coming at us, coming at us. Yeah. Do you feel like that affects, changes, impacts your ability to think positive and to sort of manifest certain things that you want to happen because we're so deep in the sludge or is it to no no I, I that's there's definitely something to that i mean it hasn't i don't that i'm aware of it has not uh profoundly affected my life in a negative way but i definitely have been more negative and pessimistic in the last six years than ever before just to, uh, as a whole, not even just pol- not not even in terms of the political landscape, although that's a huge component of it. But you know what it is, Jeff? It's like in the last. I, actually, I take that back. Scratch that, because I realize that what I'm that what what bums me out the most and what makes me feel the most pessimistic and negative is impact. What was impacted by the by politics, which is it exposed the level of discourteousness in people and mercenary behavior and selfishness and racism and bigotry and misogyny that I really believed was all fairly under the, like under the, under your breath. You know, of course we've all experienced shitty people and all of the, you know, the, the behavior that I just listed throughout our lives. But for me, it was always sort of like the minority. It was like there's rare occurrence when someone would be, would be so openly discourteous or racist or hateful. And now I find that it's become so commonplace that my, my feeling about society and my, quotes fellow man is unlike it's ever been in my life. And, and it's the, I'm the most pessimistic about humanity than I've ever been. July 4th. I used to love July 4th. And yeah. the past few years, I was just like, I'm not feeling this. I'm just not feeling this. And that sucks. I hate that. Hey, before I forget, speaking of manifestation yep. or willing things to happen, was something I didn't mention. I mentioned in the book that it's happened to me countless times. And if I were to write a book about every time that I've had some version of that, it would be a, its own book, right? But one of the examples, when I was a kid, like not just every other kid in Chicago, but pretty much every kid in that followed football, I was a massive Peyton fan. Oh, yeah. And I really, I loved your book. Oh, thank Peyton. you. I really did. And uh, it's why we're talking, because that's how I knew about you. And um, and I didn't, I, I, I bought and read that book just a couple years ago. I, don't, I just was like, I don't even remember how it came on my radar. But I was like, oh, I need to read that. And I, I burned through it in like two days. Um, when I was 
14, I was a massive Peyton fan. And I was in a shopping mall in Northbrook, Illinois with my buddy. I couldn't, I remember he drove, he was two years older than me, so he drove, I couldn't drive. And we were walking and we, I looked in a store and I saw Peyton. And I remember going, I, I have to meet him. I have to, but I didn't, you know, I wish now in retrospect that I'd been cool enough to just go up to him and say, Mr. Peyton, it, you know, it's, uh, I'm such a fan, blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to kind of like play it cool. And so I just sort of, we walked in and pretended to be shopping or walk. And he, as soon as we walked in, he was like, oh, these guys want my autograph. Totally. And he was super cool and super gracious and signed a card that was like, the, he was just hanging out with the owner of whatever that store was. Like he was friends with them. And so he, it was the it was the business card of these of this guy and he just signed sweetness on the back and even Peyton who I worshipped at that time yeah. uh, even my sports heroes you know I've become friends with Jimmy Connors he was my Jimmy Connors was my tennis hero when I was growing up Jimmy Connors and I text each other we have martinis together you know these people the people who really did make an impact have found their way into my path almost to a person that's awesome Wait, it yeah. made me think of something I kind of wanted to ask you. It's interesting. You mentioned Peyton, Jimmy Connors. You've had this huge career in music. Is fame bullshit? Fame itself, like the, you know, you're going up to Walter Payton, you're a kid, and you're intimidated by Walter Payton. You're intimidated going up to Walter Payton because yeah. Walter Payton is this, this thing, and he's done this thing, and I'm, whatever, I'm a, I'm a huge music fan, and here's Richard Marks, and he's written all these hits, and I'm terrified of going up to him. And we put this barrier around fame. Is it bullshit? Is it ridiculousness? Is it stupid? It, it depends on the person. Fame itself, of course, is bullshit. Because you're just people. Right. And, and the people who live their lives in a real famous way are not generally people I'm going to want to hang out with. It, because that's just pretentious and it's insecure. I've certainly been around people and I know people who kind of walk that walk and they're not my favorite people to hang out with, but I get it. It's fine. They're, and they're, if they're kind to me, that's all I care about. But every once in a while, like you just made me think of someone and I only worked with him very briefly in the, in my early days before I had a record deal. But I, when I was a background singer, I got hired to sing on a Julio Iglesias record. I actually write about it in the book. Uh-huh. And Julio Iglesias of all people is the first person who comes to mind as someone who I think embraces his fame and enjoyed his fame to this day. I mean, he's an older guy now, but he really enjoyed being famous in the best of ways in that he, he met, he amassed a tremendous amount of wealth, world famous, not as famous in America, but everywhere else, especially in Latin America, like the biggest star ever. Mm-hmm. And being around him was fun because he really enjoyed his fame. He wasn't cocky or he didn't come off ever as anything but sweet and and cordial and kind to people. But everything from his clothes to his scent to his generosity, he would, you know, if Julio went to dinner and I got invited to dinner once or twice just as the background singer. It was 40 people and he took care of everyone. And he, like he would either bring the most amazing gourmet food into the studio or we would he would take us to a private room. At a, there's something about living that way and sharing it that I find awesome. And I, I try to do my own version of that with people who are close to me. I love exposing people to situations 
and experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's what that's when fame and success really pays off. Right. Is when you can do things like that and and share that with other people. That's the greatest. I'm going to throw a super curveball at you here. You wrote a song is not one of your hits. And I was looking through so I was going through the Richard Marks catalog trying to find a song that just like fascinated me. And you wrote this song, I think it came out last year called Not in Love. Oh yeah. And it's kind of a badass song. I can't recall a single funny thing that you said. We were never good together. Your lyrics are, I don't think about you. I don't wish you would call. I don't long for you when the blue shadows fall. And war's the only answer. And every fairy tale is true. And I'm not in love with you. And then I love, I can't recall a single funny thing you ever, that you said. We were never good together. The heartache's all in my head. Now, when you write a song like that, like a fuck you kind of song, Mm -hmm. do you need to be thinking of a specific person? Do you have to have a muse? Or it doesn't matter. Can you be sitting in a park on a nice day, thinking no one, and just write a kick-ass I hate you song? Well, that's not an I hate you song. That's the ultimate I love you song. It's all irony. Every line in that song is ironic. It's so funny. I was listening to it in the car. I guess I'm an idiot. I'm listening no, to it. No, 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 you're not an idiot. You took it literally when in fact it's a metaphor. Like if you really look at the lyric, okay. war is the only answer and every fairy tale is true and I am not in love with you. Like it's all opposites. I can't recall a single funny thing that you said means all I do is sit around and think of every funny thing you said. We were never good together means we were the best together. Interesting. So that song, which is interesting that you love that song because you didn't get it the way I intended it. I feel like an idiot. I kind of feel like an idiot. (laughs) You can cut this bit out if you want. Uh, No, I'm not going to. No, but I love, I love that song so much. And, and real quickly, uh, I had, I was sitting with that song for a couple of years. I couldn't quite finish it. And I thought there was something special about it. And I think that what I loved about it was the, was the irony of it. So I knew that conceptually it was cool. And I just couldn't, I couldn't come up with a third verse that I liked. And it needed a third verse. And this is like eight or nine years ago. That's how old the song was. And I'd already been sitting with it for like a year or two then. And I ended up meeting Sarah Bareilles. And I was a huge fan of her, still am. And we decided to try to write to write together. So she came to my house for the weekend and we wrote a song that was kind of nice that she sang a demo. We did a demo with her singing it. It was okay. It wasn't great. And then we wrote another song that we sang together kind of like as a duet, which didn't really fit her record, but is a song that I think will get out into the world at some point. It's a really good song. And then right before she was going to go to the airport, I was going to drive her to the airport to fly back to New York where she was living. I played her that song, Not In Love. And I said, can I just, you know, I feel because we hit it off. I really liked her a lot. And I said, I, I feel like you'll tell me the truth. Is this even worth finishing? And she went, oh my God, this song is fucking gorgeous. This song is so great. I love this song. I said, well, I don't have a last verse. And she said, you just finish it. You'll get it. And I said, I, I'm stuck. So in the 20 minutes we had before she had to get in the car to go to the airport, she wrote the lines in the last verse that finished the song that are so great. And so I, I have a huge debt of gratitude to Sarah for co-writing that song with me. I will never understand songwriters. And I've had, I've talked to many who say like, 
five years later, I finished the song. Like I can't even get my head around like the idea that like I have the song, I'm going to put it aside five years later. I'm going to pick it up again. Yeah. That's insane. Well, there's a, there's a song on the, that same album on this, on the last album on the limitless album called this one that I wrote with my buddy, Matt Scannell from vertical horizon. He's my best friend. And we've written so many songs together. And we wrote that song years ago, like five years ago, four years ago. And obviously, or maybe even longer. And we both liked it. And we did a little demo of it. And we both forgot about it. We for both forgot that we wrote it. <laughs> and I was literally deleting files off my laptop, just making room on my computer. And I almost deleted the file because I was like, oh, I don't even know what this is. But I listened to it. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? And then I listened to it after five or six years of not hearing it and went, holy shit, I really love this song. And it's on the album. But I almost deleted it. And when I sent it to Matt, I said, do you even remember us writing this? He goes, no, I have no recollection. But holy shit, is it good? Wow. So that works okay even if you're in a totally different place in your, in your yeah. head or where you're writing. Like, that's fine. You can pick up a song five years later, maybe even make it better. That's for sure. And also, you don't need to be in the headspace of the song. You know, I, I have tended in my career, in my life, to write some of the best sad songs when I've been really depressed and in a bad place because it's purging and it's therapeutic. But, you know, I've never been happier in my life. But just the other day, I wrote a song that would, if you just took it on face value, you'd go, oh my God, Richard Marx is so depressed. Because I've been depressed. I've been miserable. I've been like in the fucking trenches. And I can always recall that. I can always call on that if that's what the song is saying it, or needs to say. Just because I'm super happy and madly in love with my wife doesn't mean that I'm going to write songs about being happy and madly in love with my wife because there's more to talk about. And also, I fucking hate happy songs. I think they're boring. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of agree. I feel you. Yeah. I want to ask you about one more song and because it's one of my favorites of all time. Richard Marks and I is Dance With My Father, which, which you did with Luther Vandross. It sent me deep down, reading your book, sent me deep down to Luther Vandross' hole wormhole good good I think he, was one of, he has to be one of the most underrated singers of all time and i know he's super well known and blah 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 and the song is ridiculous like it's so ridiculously good when you write a song with somebody else like i hate collaborative writing like i hate collaborative yeah. writing. yeah when you write a song with somebody else do you have to let some ego go do you have to allow for something that you don't normally allow or is it just easy you're writing with luther vandras and this is easy no, the, the, the former, you have to, uh, especially if I'm writing a song with Luther or Keith Urban or any artist for them, for, you know, that, that they're going to record. And that's been sort of stated up front. Like when Keith Urban has said, hey, let's get together to write a song. It's always, let's try to find a song I can do, meaning him. Right. We've written a handful of songs that are really good songs that just ended up not being right for him right for his album or whatever so there are some there are some keith urban richard mark songs sitting there that no one's heard that are really good they just haven't found their way onto a record because they weren't right for keith at the time but the other three that we wrote were all mega hits for him i'll use keith as a, as the best the best example of to answer your question there have been times writing with keith where we will disagree about something it's never musically we we write the music so effortlessly together. It's just easy because we're both melody whores. We love catchy, 
memorable melodies, and we're both pretty good at writing them. So when you put two guys together who are pretty good at that, you're going to get a really, really good melody. We always write great melodies together, I think. Mm-hmm. Lyrically, I tend to want to be a little more poetic and a little bit more offbeat, whereas Keith is like, just fucking say it. You know, don't flower it up. And there have been times when we've gone back and forth and we will never, it never gets contentious or anything like that, but we'll go back and forth and I'll argue with him or he'll argue with me. And then ultimately he knows (laughs) that we'll have a few minutes of going back and forth. And if he sticks to his guns, then that's what we're going to do because it's his record. Right. If we're writing something for me or if I'm co-writing, which, you know, again, I don't collaborate that much from my own records, but when I do... I have the final say. I'm not going to cave to somebody else's. And so in that case, my co-writer's ego has to be put on hold. Right. But when I'm writing with, when I was writing with Luther, when I write with Keith, when I write with someone for their project, it's my ego that gets the mute button. Because, I mean, unless it's a fundamental, like if they want to write a line that I think is just garbage or offensive or not, not that that's ever happened, but then I would, of course, stick to my guns. But generally, I write with people who I know and like. And at the end of the day, I'm there to, to help them say what they want to say. And my ego gets the mute button. I had a really weird songwriting conversation years ago with, uh, you know, Stephen Bishop. I know him. I had a discussion with him for an interview I did. And he was saying, he was like, I would love to team up with Justin Bieber. I said, would you team up with Justin Bieber? I'd love to team up with Justin. And obviously, it wasn't going to happen. Justin Bieber wasn't going to hire Stephen Bishop to write a right. song. And I was thinking like, does there come a point in your life when you, like you're in your 50s, could you write with Olivia Rodrigo and would it make sense? Or are you at such a different stage in your life or a Bieber or something like that, that there comes a point where you were writing for your age or does it not work that way? Um, I think in most cases, it's probably true. In my case, you know, my primary collaborator, if I collaborate now, my primary collaborator is my 29-year-old son. And he writes with people younger than him. And I listen to pop music. I listen to Olivia Rodrigo and I listen to Camila Cabello and I listen to, you know, top 40 radio. I like a lot of it. I really like a lot of it. You know, my, a lot of my peers, when I get together with them and the conversation turns to music, it's almost always somebody saying there's no good songwriting anymore and nobody else like dude shut the fuck up there's great shit out there you're just not listening to it you know so i think that uh my sensibilities would absolutely lend themselves to any young artist in terms of craft and helping them craft a melody or helping them turn a phrase or work on a lyric whatever i i think i would be a fine collaborator for anybody the difference is and no disrespect to stephen bishop but if you were to ask me the same question, would you want to, do you want to work with Justin Timberlake? And I, I you know, I produced NSYNC, so I, but I, I've never worked with Justin as a, as a songwriter. The answer would be, of course, I would love to write a song with Justin Timberlake, but Justin Timberlake doesn't fucking need to write a song with me. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need Stephen Bishop. He's got his team and he's got himself. And there are certain artists who I think I would really be valuable to as a collaborator but most of the artists who I really love, Halsey, Tovlo, Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, you name it, they don't need my help. They're, one of the reasons I love what they do is because they're doing just fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I always ask every sports writer what's the worst confrontation they've had with a with a sports figure. I always ask uh, singer songwriters what's the worst gig you ever had as far as like crowd of two or people throwing beer or something. What's your worst gig? Um, opening for Night Ranger in 1988 in uh, I believe it was Portland. I write extensively about this actually in the book. The first big tour I got on was REO Speedwagon. I was opening for REO Speedwagon. And I won't delve into the details of the experience of touring with them over over a summer in 1988 or 87, whenever it was, except to tell you that I'm having dinner with Kevin Cronin in two weeks. Oh, cool. That's, if that tells you anything. Yeah. And it wasn't just Kevin Cronin. It's the whole, it was the whole band and crew. It was like the dream tour to be, to be welcomed onto a tour the way Ario Speedwagon welcomed me and my band and my crew is just the, the, it was the greatest. Well, at one point, Ario Speedwagon took a break and I needed to keep touring because I had a whole team of people out there and I had a record out and I had to keep going. And so we picked up three shows opening for Night Ranger and it was a fucking nightmare. I called them Nightmare Ranger from that point on. Um, it wasn't really so much the band, although the band just sort of stayed to themselves. But it was just the whole experience. They were just, it was like the typical treat the opening act like shit, don't give them a sound check. You know, Don't Mean Nothing was a huge hit when I did that tour. And I think we were allowed 45 minutes to open our show or 40 minutes or whatever it was. And because, literally because the applause after each song was so extensive, the last 30 seconds of Don't Mean Nothing went over the, our time limit and the Night Ranger people turned our sound off and lights in the middle of the song. Right. They're just assholes. And then they got booed when they came out by their own audience. So... Yeah, that was the, uh, but I've been really lucky. There's very, very few gigs I've done where I go, fuck, that was a nightmare. Let's say tomorrow you run into like Jack Blades from Night Ranger at your local Starbucks. We hug each other. You would, right? You don't seem like a grudge holder in this business at all. No, I mean, I used to be. I used to really be a, my joke used to be, I've never met a grudge I couldn't hold, but I'm not that guy anymore. I let, you got to let shit go. And no, all those guys, I would absolutely give them a big hug. Yeah, that's cool. Well, listen, I love the book. I read you. I freaking love it. It's great. And uh, I loved your book. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading the Bo book. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I, uh, I appreciate your time a whole lot. And thank you for doing it. My that. pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Richard Marks, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Marks and purchase stories to tell wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.